This podcast is brought to you by Ambiguous Podcast Solutions. If you're interested in creating or expanding your podcast, find out more at ambiguouspodcastsolutions.com. Join Ambiguous Podcast Solutions to bring your podcast to life. with a genetically modified virus <laughs> the reactions <laughs> just, I mean just I mean do the math just do the math imagine you don't have to be an anti-vaxxer or a conspiracy theorist to understand there's going to be a lot of pushback mm-hmm. or even have an amount of logical skepticism to it I, uh, right and uh, and the thing is it's coming so fast and so furious. Um, you know, Andrew Cuomo said he wouldn't take it because it was a Trump vaccine. Kamala Harris said something similar. That was stupid for, again, the, that's another issue, the politicization. But for instance, the SEIU, which is the largest um, healthcare union in the country, that's the union that unionizes, uh, you know, the custodial staff, the janitorial staff the security staff in virtually every hospital in the United States, they don't want that to be mandatory. They want it to be voluntary. And I'm saying to myself now, well, wait a minute. If I'm walking into a hospital and the janitor's over there mopping the floor, I'd like to be assured that he or she has taken the vaccine, you know, uh, that I don't have to worry that they're going to be a super spreader, you know. Uh, so there, there are, you know, as I did the research for this uh, podcast yesterday, these issues started bubbling up. And what I try to do with my podcast, I try to keep my podcast to about 20, 25 minutes. Um, as you know, the typical U.S. commute is 20 to 25 minutes. So I figured, okay, I'll do a podcast that people could listen to on their way to work, on their way home from work, on their way to the gym, whatever. So I try to keep it to 20, 25 minutes. Yesterday's went up to 35 minutes. I still had another 10 minutes of material that I could have put in. So um, it's so in, in any case, I'm, I'm t- explaining to you my process and uh, what have you. But for each one of these podcasts that I get into, that one yesterday required a, a deeper dive because I didn't know the history of the anti-vax movement, and I wasn't as up to speed on the science behind the COVID vaccine, but I am now. And uh, I'll tell you, it's there. I'll be surprised if we get to the 60% uh, vaccination effective rate here in the United States. They're saying that we need to reach 60% vaccination level in this country to begin to have herd immunity. I, you know, back in August, it was only 42%. By September, it was up to 50%. Now it's 60%. But once the anti-vaxxers get into high gear... Um, I think you're going to see that 60% come down quite a bit. And they don't often let up easy. Uh, oh, absolutely not. Uh, for those listening, um, do you know what episode in particular that was? If it's numbered or the title of it, just so they can, because I think that is a really good 
episode to uh, for people who want to check you out. I think that's a good exemplary episode uh, for your show. Okay. Sure. It's um, season five, episode 19. And the title is Anti-Vaxxers Fight COVID-19 Vaccines. That's the title. And it's season five, episode 19. All right. Excellent. And your show in particular, um, the title for me was a little bit interesting um, because you focus on pretty broad topics um, as what I saw. And so why the San Francisco experience? Why is that name important to you? Well, first of all, um, I was originally I was born in Manhattan. I was born a few blocks away from Times Square. You can't be more Manhattan or New York than that. <laughs> but <laughs> I had relatives here in San Francisco, uh, and my parents during the 1950s talked about moving to San Francisco. So San Francisco always loomed very large in my personal history and my family history. Um, I, you know, as I was looking around for a name for this podcast back in the early part of this year, I, I settled on the name the San Francisco Experience because San Francisco has been so important to me, an important part of my life. It's the place where I chose to be. Um, I felt that it was a place that has brought a lot of creativity to me. Um, so that's part of the explanation. But I just, I just figured, hey, everybody loves San Francisco. Yeah. You know, what's not to yeah. love? And yeah. it kind of, it, it sort of stands out. You know, people, no matter where you are in the world. And according to Spotify, I have listeners in 23 countries now. Um, oh, wow. I, did, I, did a ta- I did a tally on Anchor, and it looks more like 45, but I'll take the Spotify numbers of 23. And you know, anybody in the world who's going to listen to a podcast, they're going to see the name San Francisco. They're going to say, hey, I know about San Francisco. I've heard about San Francisco. And so I figured that it was rather than to try to find some catchy name or this or that, I figured, why not go with a name that's always been very important to me and that would resonate with other people? Um, on the other hand, it's not descriptive. The San Francisco experience is not descriptive of the news commentary that I'm doing. But I figured, you know, I'll get people's attention by calling it the San Francisco experience because it's been an important part of my life. And then once they get into it, and if you read the little blurb on Spotify or, uh, well, on any of the platforms, Spotify or Anchor in particular, um, you know, it will explain almost immediately that this is a news commentary uh, uh, podcast, which focuses on uh, underreported angles from today's news stories. And you, and you certainly do a good job of that. And I'd say your name really does get the best of both worlds because you've got you can draw people in online who are looking at your show because it's something like San Francisco, which even if they haven't been, it's familiar to them. But it's also incredibly familiar to you. Yes. And, uh, you know, I've been I've been active. Um, you'll see from the, uh, the bio, um, I was the president of the San Francisco Public Library Commission for uh, four years from 1992 to 1996, when we built the new main library in Civic Center Plaza. 
Um, and the, the Library Commission was also the governing body for the 27 public library branches in San Francisco, which is one of the you know premier urban library systems in the country. Um, I've been you know peripherally uh, involved in the politics a little bit of San Francisco uh, during the Gavin Newsom when he was mayor of uh, San Francisco. Uh, I was active with him. He asked me to uh, set up a sister city between San Francisco and Bangalore, India. Uh, actually, that ha- that occurred when we were on a, a sister city visit visit to Shanghai, China. But on that trip, uh, he asked me to set up a sister city with Bangalore. And I said, oh, sure. Yeah, oh, yeah, Gavin, I'll do that. I didn't have a clue. <laughs> Did not have a clue where to start, who to go to, et cetera. And with a name like Herlihy, you can imagine, you know, there's not a, there's not much Indian in me. So I figured, you know what? I'll, I'll figure it out. I'll figure it out. So um, just at the time that we that he asked me to do it, I was on garden leave between Citibank and Deutsche Bank. I was just about to join Deutsche Bank and Citibank insisted that I have, have like a three month cooling off period. So I thought, gee, what, what better time to go to India? So I went to India. I had some former colleagues from my Citibank days who were Indian and uh, they gave me some introductions to, uh, to the civic leaders and business leaders in Bangalore. And Bangalore, as you probably know, is the Silicon Valley of India. Mm-hmm. And um, so I got there. I spent about 10 days there. Uh, I did a lot of interviews of um, government officials, private sector officials. And I found out that there was a lot of interest and desire on their part to set up a sister city relationship. So I came back. I met with Gavin. I told him, look, this is what I found out. Um they would like to have a memorandum of understanding. He said, sure, go for it. So um, we set up a, uh, a uh, one of the, this is back in like 2008 when we didn't have Google Hangouts. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was a big deal. I called my friends at KKNR and they had a, a, one of those big uh, TV screens. They connected us to Bangalore and we had a virtual signing of the MOU to create the two sister cities between San Francisco and Bangalore, um, thanks to KKNR in San Francisco. So that's a little bit of my, uh, the, you know, my political involvement. You'll notice that at the beginning, well, you may, you probably haven't seen it, but in my book, and I'll, I'll send you a, uh, an electronic version of it later, um, there's a testimonial from the former mayor of San Francisco, Frank Jordan. Mm-hmm. Um, so you'll so I again, I, I had a little uh, a little bit of involvement with uh, with City Hall uh, through the sister city operation. I'm also the uh, treasurer of the Cork sister city, uh, San Francisco and Cork are sister cities. Uh, the sister city international movement was created by President Eisenhower in 1956. And the, the purpose of that was to foster citizen diplomacy. So in 1956, President Eisenhower asked the then mayor of San Francisco, George Christopher, to create the first sister city between the United States and Japan, Osaka. And since then, we're up to 19 sister cities. And uh, for instance, Jimmy Carter asked Diane Feinstein to create Shanghai as a sister city in 1979. And San Francisco and Shanghai 
played a real San Francisco played a really important role in bringing uh, Shanghai out of the Middle Ages, you know, the Cultural Revolution, etc., um, and modernizing China as China uh, modernizing Shanghai that is into the big mega financial center that it is today. So, um, so in, in any case, I'm involved with the, uh, the sister city operations uh, of San Francisco, specifically on the, on the co-chair of the Bangalore San Francisco sister city, treasurer of the Cork sister city, and um, active with a couple of the other ones, the Shanghai sister city, et cetera. So that's, uh, again, to come back about my San Francisco bona fides, there's, you know, there's a, a, a San Francisco city hall connection there the sister city connection and uh, kind of a little bit of dabbling in politics. I still stay in touch with uh, Gavin Newsom. As you, as you know, he moved on to a bigger and better job up in Sacramento. So, um, so I'm, I'm in contact with him. And in fact, I'm uh, completely unrelated to my podcast. Although there, there were a couple of podcasts on our wildfires back in September, October, Mm -hmm. I'm working with one of my neighbors. Uh, she heads up a strategic planning firm over in Berkeley, and we're putting together a strategic plan to deal with the wildfires of California. Believe it or not, California does not have a strategic plan oh, wow. to deal oh, wow. with wildfires. And you know, and I know the rest of the country, like us, every September when we have these horrifying wildfires, the rest of the country says, didn't you guys take care of that last year? You know, how can, how can this, and it's now become a regular thing. So make a long story short, uh, with my neighbor who heads up a strategic planning company over in Berkeley, we're working with the governor's staff to, we've, we've actually developed the first draft of a wildfire strategic plan. For California, oh, that's incredible. And and we're working with the governor's uh, staff, a guy by the name of Wade Crowfoot. We're working with him to present that wildfire plan to the governor. So, as you can imagine, there's a lot of moving pieces to it. Oh, yeah. but, uh, but but to give you some idea, I mean, uh, I'm we have a I live in San Francisco, but we also have a home here in Sonoma. So I'm talking to you right now from my home in Sonoma. Um, We got evacuated this year. We got evacuated last year. My daughter and her family, they also have a a second home over in Napa County in Calistoga. Well, they were evacuated from that house for like 10 days. And they only bought the house in August. So, you know, we were biting our fingernails on that. So the the point is... um, the point is, we don't have a strategic plan. Me and a, a couple of other folks are working from a private sector perspective on putting together a strategic plan, which we're putting in front of the governor, hopefully in January. And we haven't got a lot of time to do this because our wildfire season, uh, you know, in the past used to be like late September, October, and that was it. Well, now it's extending because of the prolonged droughts that we've had. Uh, For instance, today, it's about 68 degrees, slightly windy. And once the wind picks up and you haven't had any rain and it's very dry, 
that's perfect wildfire conditions. So here it is, you know, two weeks before Christmas, and we're getting wildfire uh, warnings, you know, that. um, So in any case, crazy times that we live in. I, you know, I, I agree with the governor. It is climate change. But you know what? Yes, it is climate change, but we need to have a strategic plan to have the mundane building blocks to fight the fires once they begin. Mm-hmm. It doesn't help to not do it. Right. It, it just it doesn't help to give me a lecture on global climate change when the fire is visible from my back deck. Yeah. You know, um, I, I want something much more concrete and practical and implementable so that's we're we're working on that. Well, I, I certainly so, thank you for it. And you're just talking about a few uh, first experiences for you. So I wonder if I could ask your sort of first experience with podcasting. What sort of drew you towards that medium, and why you decided to make the show the way you make it? Well, you know, the interesting thing about podcasting, again, giving you a little bit about about my background, I was a stringer. So uh, in the past, I was involved with the written piece of uh, broadcasting, you know, writing reports, publishing them, um, occasionally getting them on the BBC or on cable TV. So I liked that. I liked uh, when I wrote my book, um, I liked the aspect of researching, writing up the book, sending it off to a publisher, getting that done, uh, getting it published and letting the publisher, you know, do the mechanics of promoting the book, marketing the book, uh, getting it on shelves, getting it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, etc. But what really appealed to me about podcasting was the fact that it is a vertically integrated publishing experience from research to final promotion and all in between from research to writing up the script, polishing and editing the script, recording the script, then you're getting into the technical side of it, um, the recording, the editing, the which I'm, I'm still learning. Let me just turn oh, that off. Um, so there, so I like that aspect of it. And then finally, once you've actually published your podcast, after you've done your research, you've done the write-up, you've done the recording, you've done the editing, then you publish it, then you've got to promote it. So to answer your question, what appeals to me about about podcasting is that it's, it's a vertical integration of every aspect of publishing that at one time or another I've been involved with. And, and the beauty of it is I, I enjoy each one of those aspects. I mean, basically, podcasting is three words. It's production, it's distribution, and it's promotion. Three words. And obviously, there's a lot of activity packed into each one of those three words. But um, And, you know, some of us are better at the production piece of it. Others are better at the technical piece of it. Um, promotion. I've always been in, uh, you know, when I was in the private banking business, the investment mm-hmm. business, um, I was part of the business development crew. Uh, I was the rainmaker. I had to bring in new clients, etc. So promotion is something that comes fairly easy to me. 
But again, I liked, so to answer your question, the vertical integration of podcasting takes you through every aspect of the broadcasting industry. And I like that. I like the idea of being in control of what I research, what I write up, what I publish, how I present it technically to my audience, and who I talk to, folks like you, to help promote it. And again, it comes down to three words, production, distribution, and uh, promotion. So that's been my, uh, I didn't realize that when 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 I began this process back in March. I didn't realize that, but as I've gotten into it, and as I said, I'm up to 103 episodes now, as I've gotten into it, I, I realize that it gives me, it, it just gives me a lot of control over the whole process. One thing that really frustrated me when I was writing my book, and two friends of mine have recently written books, uh, both uh, books works of fiction, and mine is a financial thriller called Deceit and Dirty Money. It really frustrated me when I wrote my book. I did all my research. I wrote the book. I went to I, I went to a couple of creative writing classes over at Berkeley because I wanted to change my writing style from kind of legalistic economic reporting, business reporting to something that was more fictional in style. So I, I did all of that. I learned about voice. I I you know, went to all sorts of writers workshops to polish my writing style. And then at once I finished my manuscript and had it edited and polished and good to go, then I had to let go. I had no control over the most important part. Well, the, the next most important part of the process, which is the distribution part of the process, getting an agent persuading an agent that it made sense for them to represent me in this book um, and making sure that I got the right agent who was actually going to go out there and, you know, aggressively market my book. I, I've always believed that nobody markets me and my products better than me. Well, that certainly makes sense with, with podcasting. All due <laughs> modesty. So, so the 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 beauty of podcasting is that you are marketing it yourself and there's you know there's no excuse there's no excuse uh you you know if you're not good at marketing you better learn it quick because uh so so they were the so that was one of the big differences that i noticed between print medium and writing my book and then having to give up control over the distribu- the, the publishing and the getting the agent and the uh, finding a publisher for my book, I wasn't a. I had to give that up to somebody else. And quite frankly, I never had a lot of confidence in the people, the agents that I ended up getting. But make a long story short, the book got published, and so so it's all it's all history now. But that's one of the aspects that I really like about podcasting. Um, I just figure it's up to me to market this and to aggressively market and to sell it and to articulate why 
the listeners should listen to it. And the, the reason that the listeners should listen to it is this. There are so many, first of all, most Americans today are getting their news from the internet. Mm-hmm. And, and, not, and, and an awful lot of Americans don't read much more than the headline and the first paragraph of most news stories. And, and I thought to myself, you know, we can, surely we can do better than that. Yeah. So, so what I figured was I would take a news story. For instance, big news story, obviously, is the COVID-19 vaccine. I would take one aspect of that story, the anti-vaxxer opposition to this vaccine. I could take that one angle and then do my research and do a 35-minute podcast on that one aspect. Um, so I really like the uh, I really like the independence that the podcast gives me to take a broad news story, do a deep dive on one element of that story, and then turn around to my listeners and say, you know, okay, you listen to the you listen to the podcast, the New York Times podcast this week, or you listen to the Post Report podcast or the BBC podcast, okay, you can take my podcast on vaxxers and that's kind of a, uh, you know, that, that kind of expands one of the podcasts that you listen to on this week from the New York Times or the Washington Post. That's what I'm trying to achieve here. And that's, it's much easier for me to articulate that to my listeners than to try to explain that to a middleman, a marketer, in the hope that they're going to have the same kind of passion that I have about these underreported angles that need to be reported. But the big boys, uh, the New York Times podcast, the Washington Post podcast, they haven't got the time to do those deep dives. I have. I have got the time and I've got the willingness to do it. So so I, that, that's another reason that got me into podcasting. And uh, and of course, this has been evolving since I started the podcast on March 26th. Obviously, the lockdown on March 16th mm-hmm. um, gave me a lot of time and put a, you know, left a lot of time on my hands uh, to do something like this. But um, so that's that's how it began to evolve. And as I said, once I got into it, I, you know, I got I got very uh, excited about it. I'm a big listener to the BBC. When I lived in Latin America, um, we lived in Quito, Ecuador, Santiago, Chile and Monterrey, Mexico. And my first assignment was in Quito, Ecuador. We were there for three years. Uh, It's the capital of the country. It's 10,000 feet up and it's 13 miles south of the equator. Hard to find or to think of a more isolated place in the world. And so when we went to live there, and I was, I had to speak Spanish all day when I was at work. When I came home from work, I didn't want to hear another word of Spanish. I love it. But at the end of the day, I was done. I, I just, I couldn't take another word of Spanish. So I would come home, I would turn on the BBC World Service, and that you know that that world service really transported me 
away from this isolation of being up in the Andes. Make a long story short, I continue to be hooked into the World Service. And they have on a Friday night, uh, I think they've changed the time of it, but they had a 20-minute program on the World Service that just deals with, it's called BBC Trending. And all it deals with is social media and social media, you know, particularly hate groups and free speech and uh, even conspiracy theories. But this is coming from the BBC. I mean, this is not coming from right wing nutcases. So I contacted the guy, uh, the producer. His name is Mike Wendling. um, And we did we've done a couple of Zoom calls. So so again, you know, my so my podcast has given me a platform, if you will, to be able to talk to the guy at the BBC who runs their BBC trending program um, and to talk to him about hate speech and what's going on. And then from there, what I did, I went to Gonzaga University up in Spokane, Washington. Um, they have a an institute for hate studies. Can you imagine you know, applying for a job and saying, well, what's your, what's your bachelor's in? Well, yes, I got my bachelor's in hate studies, but but in any case, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not shy. So I cold called the director of the Institute for Hate Studies at Gonzaga University. Gonzaga University is a Jesuit university in Spokane in Eastern Washington. And they are uh, spitting distance to the border with Idaho and, you know, some of those uh, ultra right wing Nazi uh, compounds are are within striking distance, no pun intended, of Spokane. So I called the director of the Hate Institute at Gonzaga University and I, I figured, hey, you know, well, so I, I've developed a dialogue with her. And so the podcast. So she was interested in my podcast. I've done a couple of. Um, uh, episodes. There's uh, one in particular that I did on hate speech. I can't remember the, I can't remember, it was back in, uh, back in the summer, but you know, I have individual artwork for each podcast. And the, the artwork for that is just hate with uh, a, a red circle and a line through it. So, um, but I was able to talk to her. Um, we've developed a nice dialogue So one of the things, so the podcast has given me a platform, if you will, uh, and kind of a a calling card and a door opener. Um, And I I just cite those two examples of my podcast opening the door for me to talk to uh, the BBC director of BBC Trending, that program, and then to talk with and develop a relationship with the woman who heads up the Hate Institute at Gonzaga University. So, you know, the this podcast gig is opening so many doors to me that, um, it, you know, in addition to actually writing, researching the podcast and uh, recording it and publishing it, part of the research is introducing me to some very interesting people. An unforeseen uh, benefit. Yeah, definitely. Um, if... Uh, if you had to say what your targeted audience was, is there a particular group that you think you're trying to reach out to on your show or that you think the type of people that should listen to your show? Well, you know, it's very interesting. Anchor 
anger gets a lot of knocks, but it works for me. And um, their metrics, uh, they, they give me metrics. I look at the metrics every day and they have audience metrics for me. And my audience metrics break down very interestingly. My audience is 75% male, 20% female, and 5% uh, binary or non-specified. And then within the, then they break down the age groups. And I'm at about some 35% largest single listening group are 60 plus, you know, <laughs> angry old white man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then, then in addition to the angry old white men, I've got, I've got, a, I've got a bunch of millennials. I've got a nice cluster of millennials at about 15% of my listeners. And then I've got this dip uh, in, in listenership between like the, uh, you know, 26 to 32, 33 category dips down a little bit. But then young, uh, younger audience, you know, from like 22 to 26, I've got about 10 or 15%. So, so to, again, I didn't begin thinking, oh, I'm going to target mm-hmm. angry old white men. But it's, it's just sort of worked out that way. And I, to the extent that there are, what, 800,000 podcasts. And again, I try to keep my podcast relatively succinct. Uh, so at about the 20 to 25 minute time frame, I'm figuring, okay, they could slot this in on their commute uh, to the gym or to work or to whatever, because the average American commute is 20 to 25 minutes. Obviously, people aren't commuting as much as they are with lockdowns. but but that was my rationale for the time uh, piece of it. Um, and then when you think about it, to actually sit down and listen to a podcast for 20 or 25 minutes, that's a big ask of people. You know, it is a big, of all the other things that you have to do in your day, that is a big ask. And it means that you've got a lot of time. I mean, if you look at somebody like Joe Rogan, the Joe Rogan experience, and he has these stream of consciousness conversations that go on for an hour or two hours or whatever. I, I mean, who, I guess you just kind of dive in, listen to it for 10 or 15 minutes and then go on about your day and come back and come back later on. And he's still going on with that. Um, I, I, I wanted, I want, I didn't want something like that. I wanted something I wanted a podcast that's relatively short that could be, you know, shoehorned into your day and ideally during your commute. I I think what what I also, if you, every one of my podcasts, every single one of them has exactly the same format. I I have the, uh, every episode has its own individual thumbnail piece of art. I try to find a, a, I try to create a punchy, uh, title. And then everyone begins with the lead in, which is uh, this is the San Francisco experience, Jim Hurley, your host, season five, episode 19, and then the title. And then every, and every single one ends with I have a conclusion. And then I always cite my sources, main, the main sources for each podcast. 
And then it concludes with, you know, this has been the San Francisco experience with your host, Jim McGregor reporting from San Francisco, America's favorite city. So that format is always the same for all 103 episodes. So what I'm trying to do with that is to, for my listeners to be predictable Mm -hmm. to my listeners. So, so that my listeners can say, okay, this is a 25 minute podcast. I can listen to this on my way to work. And I know, you know, I know how it's going to start. I know you know, the body of the uh, podcast. I know what the ending is. And I always finish with the same signature tune at the end, which, which uh, comes out of, uh, comes out of anchor. It's just, it's only like a 15, 20 second uh, signature tune at the end. So, so that's how I structure each one of those podcasts. Hopefully, um, you know, the, the audience likes that predictability and that structure. I certainly think it plays um, to your benefit. Yeah. And, <laughs> and in fact, I just changed my artwork this past weekend uh, to, um, I, so I have a, a different logo now. Instead of those orange kind of clouds, etc. cetera, um, what I have is, it's, it's like a contemporary art piece of uh, geometric shapes with a lot of with a lot of very different but bold colors, red, blue, black, green. So again, I'm not. It's not a political broadcast, but to the extent that we talk about red states and blue states and Black Lives Matter and the Greens and what have you, there's you know my my message with my new art and the colorful art is that. You know there are colors there, so if you're if you're looking for a political angle, you're going to get everything from me. I I don't want to be. Uh, I go out of my way to be nonpartisan, to be independent, to be non-ideological. Um, I don't want an echo chamber of the left or the right. Um, I I just I want to be as BBC, mm-hmm. if you will, <laughs> uh, as I can. And I've got no axe to grind about against anyone. And I figured the minute I start, the minute I start grinding an axe, or I become a left wing or a right wing echo chamber, I'm foregoing half of the potential audience out there, and I don't want to do that. And I and I figure listeners are going to get plenty of that left, right, red, blue. Uh, commentary elsewhere. I'm gonna. I enjoy listening to Michael Smirkanish on um, uh, POTUS, and you know he's from uh, he's middle of the road. Uh, he his reports are usually well researched. He's a level headed interviewer. So I, you know, I, I like to, I, I like the way he handles himself in his broadcasting. So I, in a sense, I try to model myself a little bit uh, after what he's doing. You know, I certainly don't want to be Van Jones. And I certainly don't want to be Sean Hannity. Uh, you know, if there's anyone, if there's anyone broadcaster out there today that I would, that I'd, I'd like to emulate, it's somebody like Michael Smirkanish, but without being, being a strong voice, but without being left or right, being, you know, trying to understand, tr- trying to see both sides of the equation, 
and trying to steer a path down the middle. And I certainly That's think what the I'm show achieves do. that. I, I definitely get that feel from it. And it really, I think, gravitates people just because of how organic your show feels, like the artwork, like the structure that you've had from day one. I think that sort of familiarity and uniqueness about it really is something that pushes it above sort of a normal podcast you'd find somebody starting out. I commend you for keeping up with that because <laughs> it's pretty difficult with that many episodes uh, sticking to the same formula. Um, so in the beginning, what were some of the other things that you knew your show had to have in it? Um, well, for instance, uh, interviewing, Again, my my technical skills. Inter- I have a uh, I have one of those Rodecaster podcaster uh, uh, decks. I am so I am taking baby steps in terms of learning my way around the technical side of it. I know that I need to have more interviews and should do more interviews. I've done very few of them, so that's uh, you know certainly for next year. I want to bring in more guests into my podcast. Uh, and so I need to brush up my editing skills, my recording skills. So, you know, I have, and I, and I think I have the, I think I have the right deck to do it, but it's a question of learning those more technical skills. Obviously with COVID, my ability to go to a class or to, uh, to you know, to, to work with, a an audio guy, a technical guy. Obviously, you can't do that. You can do it over the phone, but you know, to have a live tutorial with somebody like that, obviously, you can't do that with COVID. So that's my intent next year. So that's something that I I think I could improve on and could expand. Um, on the other hand, I figure once I bring uh, guests in. And I would bring guests in for relatively short clips, um, you know, to illustrate a point or to uh, along those lines, as opposed to change the format and have a have lengthy interviews. Um, I so so that's something that I, I will be changing. I you know my my sense is having grown up at, in the 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 print medium and being a being a child of you know uh, of that era, um, I like print media. I'm very comfortable with print media, and then taking print media and broadcasting that. Um, for instance, there's a there's a, there was another one another guy on the BBC long before your time. His name was Alistair Cook, and for decades he did this radio program it was like a 10 to 15 minute uh, uh piece called letter from america i lived in england for eight years i i my family moved there when i was a teenager and so he would he would every couple of days he would do letter of america letter from america and he would they were like little podcast on some you know quirky little story uh or trying to explain america <laughs> for brits <laughs> and so the, the, he was his style and that 15 minute segment and, you know, his explanatory style is something that stayed with me. I like that. I like to continue to do that. I I like the educational dimension to um, podcasting. Um, not, not, not to be overly I don't want it. You know, it's, it's not meant to be a seminar, 
but I like the idea of uh, I like the idea of somebody if somebody's going to take twenty minutes to listen to my podcast, I'd like them to be better informed. I'd like them at the end of it to say, you know what, I didn't know that, and you know he he's given me a piece of information or he sent me on a course of inquiry that um, I wouldn't have been otherwise if I hadn't have listened to this podcast. So I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I, I want to continue to develop that aspect of my my podcast. I don't know if educational is the right way, but but to you know to 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 make to stimulate people's curiosity and inquisitiveness. And I'll do the research. And in fact, I've even uh, a couple of times I've even said in my podcast, you know, if there is a story, an angle to a particular story that you'd like me to cover or to explore or do a deeper dive on, please contact me. And, uh, you know, I'm happy to uh, I'm happy to do that. So <laughs> nobody's taken me up on that yet. But that's that's something I'd like to have. I'd like to have that kind of um uh, connectivity with um, my audience, my listeners. Yeah, certainly. I think that's uh, definitely a good goal. All your goals seem very achievable, um, especially because it's. I think it's difficult for a lot of people when they start off. Um, they sort of have very high uh, expectations or goals that they're trying to reach that really it's sort of like, all right, maybe it's just time to focus on how to edit the video first before, <laughs> before you're trying to have on. Yeah, certainly. Um, so... That, that's that's pretty interesting. I think we can actually wrap it up right here unless you have anything else you want to say, if you want to plug any social media of yours or. Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, of course, my my Facebook page, I'll be developing a Facebook page for the uh, for the podcast. But right now, my personal um, Facebook page is Jim Hurley. My uh, I have two Twitter accounts. One is Jim Sanford at Jim San Francisco. You can contact me through at Jim San Francisco, or you can contact me at another Twitter account, which is experience underscore SF. So that's experience underscore SF. 